Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Welcome. I'm Douglas Peak, and I want to invite you to be a part of our community. I want to welcome each and every one of you. Uh, if this is your first time you've ever been on campus, we're so glad that you're here and you feel comfortable. And all of you who might be joining for the first time online, church at home, watching, watching at a later date or whatever, you're invited to be a part of our community. Don't go through life alone. Everybody needs some good friends. Uh, it's easy to do to start your journey if you'd like to. There's no, no, you don't have to sign up for anything or give your name. You can just text FH Next Step, all one word, FH Next Step to 97,000. Kind of check it out anonymously. Now, we are currently in a study of 1 John chapter, uh, chapters 1 through 5, and the Apostle John wrote four of the 27 books in the New Testament. The Bible is broken into two basic sections. You have an Old Testament, and that covers a few thousand years. I mean, it's a big library of books written over a 1,500-year period. And it ends 400 years before Christ was born. So there's a big gap in there. And then the New Testament is about Jesus, and it was written over about a 90-year period. It's a library. It's not a book. So basically, it's an assembly of 27 different books that talk about different things. And they're all written for a specific audience for a specific situation that was going on. And so what we try to do is we try to figure out, okay, if I was the person who lived then based on the historical and philosophical construct, what would I understand this person writing to me? And then once you do that, then you take a step backwards and say, okay, what are the underlying biblical principles that are applicable for us today? And we're kind of in this series right now uh, because it's about how to make sense out of life and the reason John wrote one of these letters is because at the time there was a philosophical group of people called Gnostics who had taken the terminology around these early groups of people following Jesus, and they tried to make their a new religion out of it called Gnosticism. So that's a specific reason he wrote this book. By the way, John wrote four of the 27 books in the New Testament. He wrote the gospel according to John, which was about Jesus, directly who he was, where he came from, what he preached and said. Then he wrote these three letters, first, second, and third John to the church. And then he's the guy who wrote that wild and crazy thing called the book of Revelation, okay? He recorded that when he was exiled by the Romans on the island of Patmos. So that's the four books that he wrote. Now, we're trying to ask a question, and that is, he wrote this book, basically this letter to say, okay, everybody, I just want you to know this is who you are. This is the reality in which you live. So they're pretty big questions that were asked and he's trying to answer. We talked the introduction last week, and today we're going to answer the question or ask the question, how does knowing who you are become the foundation of making sense in your life? I mean, can you make sense out of your life if you don't know who you are? Uh, can you question who you are and still make sense out of your life? Or maybe you have to know absolutely who you are before you can make sense out of your life and various things of that nature. Now, we're going to ask this question because it seems like things are getting really pretty crazy out there. 
And uh, some of them are kind of funny. Like, uh, for instance, this one right here. Uh, when I see this picture of a guy in a dog suit, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking Shaggy D.A., right, <laughs> from Disney. I loved that movie when I was a kid. And, uh, but actually, no, this is a guy who's changed his identity to Homer the dog. He believes he's a dog, and he eats dog food, and he has people take care of him like a dog. He wears this all the time. And his favorite snack is the milk bone uh, flavor dog biscuit thing. And he's actually changed his identity to be a dog, okay? So uh, they get funnier. This one, this guy here, this guy loves parrots. He, 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 he's a great, he knows a lot about parrots and how to take care of parrots, right? Well, he's decided he wants to be a parrot. So now he's changed his identity to be a parrot, and he has tattooed himself, and he's got, you can't really see too well, but he's got horns now coming out of his head that are permanently placed in there. He's removed his ears, so he doesn't have ears anymore, and now he's trying to find a, a plastic surgeon to change his nose into a beak. So I'm like, cool. I'll never have a nutcracker problem at a party ever again if he's there, right? Hey, could you take care of this for me real quick? I thought that was kind of funny. If you're new to Foothills, you just need to know you're going to get a steady stream of really stupid and bad jokes. Just That's the price you pay. Sorry. But uh, here's one that's kind of interesting. This, uh, this gal, when she was 15 years old, she's 25 now, she said, I realized I was a cat when I was 16. So she says, I am a cat trapped in a human body, and she's changed her identity to be a cat. She walks around, she eats cat food, she lives like a cat, she dresses like a cat, she walks on all fours. Uh, she must have really great uh, knees to be able to do that. And uh, the thing that's really important is she hisses at dogs when she sees them, okay? Here's another one that's kind of interesting. This guy, he changed his identity, uh, and that is into that. Uh, this is a, kind of an odd picture because the person in the middle is a 43-year-old man, but he identifies now as a six-year-old girl, okay? So he's a permanently a six-year-old girl. Now, I don't know what's strange about this picture, whether the guy who thinks he's a six-year-old girl or the parents who actually adopted him and treat him that way and take care of him. So you tell me what's senseless in that picture because I'm not quite sure, <laughs> about what it is. And now what I'm doing, if you're an intellectual person and a thinker, you go, oh, he's, a, he's pointing out extreme cases of stuff, right? That's what he's doing. And I'd say, you're right. It's exactly what I'm doing. Because what I'm doing is I'm using a form of rhetoric by, it's called argument ad absurdum. And when I, you point out the extreme cases that are being woven into the law of Western civilization and Western civilization states, and it points out that this is happening with more and more frequency. And the question is, why is that? Why is that happening? Well, I think it's because our society has adopted a underlying ideology from about it was seeded into our culture at the beginning of the 20th century in the 1900s but what happened is it got seeded into the american society and it came to fruition in the 60s and 70s and it's kind of percolated and now we're seeing it and what it is is it is a ideology that has at its core a rejection of any truth claim 
Okay? Now, in the 1900s, just prior to 1900s, was a philosopher by the name of Nietzsche. I don't know if you know Nietzsche much, but one of the things is that Nietzsche gave birth to what is known as philosophical squinting. And what that means is this. What he basically said is anytime somebody makes a truth claim, you should be skeptical. Because anytime anybody's making a truth claim, they're kind of doing a power play on you, and they're trying to manipulate you and control you. So anytime someone would say, well, this is the truth, Nietzsche would go, hmm, really? And he is, gave an articulation to what is today known as modern-day skepticism, right? So we're skeptical of any truth claims. And we've become so skeptical of them, what we've done is we say there are no truth claims that you can believe anymore. Now, what is the everyday working out in society of that? Well, what happens is that develops a senselessness. Because the truth of the matter is, and this is the difficulty that people who are scientific materialists, secular humanists, uh, people who tend towards atheism and things of that nature, uh, uh, in all fairness, they look at it and they say, look, I, I feel an intellectual questioning about this, which I think is good. We need to have an intellectual questioning. The difficulty, though, is that what all of the leaders of, the, of these movements say is that the one problem we have is it always tends towards nihilism. And what that means, basically, is that you lose your sense of why you're a human being. You lose purpose. You lose meaning. And when that happens, it's heartbreaking because you're not meant for senselessness. See, I believe that you were designed for a purpose. Now, you may not know what that is. You may have, you know, working to figure it out. You may never get it figured out, but the notion that there's some reason why you're here brings meaning and value. See, this is the key, value to you that is you. So if you haven't been here before, just listen you don't have to sign up for anything or do anything and think, because we are what I call a thinking person's church. We're not here to tell you what to think. We don't tell you who to vote for. We don't tell you what clothes to wear, music you have to listen to, and we don't have any position on alcohol. Well, we do have one position on alcohol. People ask me, what's my position on beer? And I say, well, here's our position on beer. I think IPAs are overrated. That's all I'm saying. That's a shout-out to Justin Bedron. He's going to give me a really hard time for that one. But, uh, yeah. Uh, but he's a Vandal fan, so that explains everything. Um, <laughs> see, more bad jokes. Steady stream of them. That's the price you pay. Uh, you know, what's interesting is that this notion of senselessness and nihilism and these things come is actually been written into and codified in our law. A lot of people are not aware of this. But uh, there was a, there was a, a case... Uh, called the Casey Decision, and Justice Kennedy of the Supreme Court wrote the uh, major opinion, and in it, he concluded with what is commonly known as a metaphysical statement, meaning this is all truth, okay? And this is what he said. At the heart of liberty is the right. At the heart of liberty, so this is the foundation of all your liberties, is the right, so you as an individual have a right, to do what? Define one's own concept of existence. 
So you have a right to determine who and what you are, the meaning of the universe and the mystery of human life. So why do I bring all this up? Well, because John was facing the almost the exact same philosophical principles that we are facing today in the form of Gnosticism. And so he wrote his letter to refute it. So if you're a thinking person, what you like to do is make good decisions, right? And one of the best ways to make good decisions is to say, okay, well, what does this position really say? And then what does this position say? And then I'm going to compare them and I will know which one is true. I'll be able to to discern. That's called wisdom, all right? So I'm going to read to you the second chapter, verses 1 through 17. And the thing you need to understand is that this was originally written in a different language, and it's been translated into English. And so it doesn't flow quite as well. So I'm just going to try to help you go through it, because unless you do a deep dive on Gnosticism, it's kind of a little tough to understand exactly the points he's making, because John writes a little bit more uh, with a je ne sais quoi. He has a little bit of flair to his writing. He's a kind of, I think he was a closet poet, you know, and he's kind of, you know, he wants that to come out. He likes flow and rhythm and all these kinds of things. But he was a deep thinker, and he really nailed some stuff. So let me read this to you, and then we'll break it down and see how it applies to us today, okay? No, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, "'My dear children,' so this is a, a term of affection. He's saying, you guys, I have a passion for you. "'I write this to you so that you will not sin.'" But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the whole sins of the whole world. Now, that, now this is where it gets interesting. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Verse 7, dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. And this old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and it's seen in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness, and anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven you on account of His name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Verse 15, do not love the world nor anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it comes not from God, the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Wow, that's a mouthful, isn't it? 
I mean, he really was going. And I'd like to break down for you really quick in just three basic sections. And if you'd like to refer to these later, you can. All these notes are on our message section of the app that you can download on your phone. The first one is this. In verses 1 through 3, what he's saying is that Jesus is the one who defines our reality. And the reason he did that is because Gnostics taught a totally different reality. So here's the two positions. Uh, Gnostics basically taught that there's kind, there was kind of this God out there. We don't really know who he is or she or anything at all because you can't know him, all right? And that God is pure and perfect. And this comes from Platonic dualism, if you're film, familiar with your Platonic philosophy. But basically is that there's something perfect out there. And so then they were looking at that, well, if there's a perfect God, because God can't be God unless he's perfect, right? But we live in this corrupted world. You know, it's kind of a mess. So how do you get from there to there? And that's what they were trying to think through and work out. And Plato came up with this idea of dualism. He says, hey, for every table or material thing, for a human being, a dog, cat, tree, applesauce, yogurt, and tables, and chariots, and things of that nature, there's a perfect ideal out there. But this is corrupted from that. And so what they did is they, like, uh, if you're familiar with Roman paganism, is that the, the gods up here, you know, the Titans then had Zeus and Apollo and all of them, and then they had kids. And it's kind of like that. And so they had kids, but they called them archons. And you go down the steps, okay, till you get to halfway down these steps, and then this is the god who was corrupted. He wasn't the pure god. He was a corrupted god, like a demigod. And what he did is he created the world corrupted. And that's where all the messed up stuff came from. Right? That's why we live in a corrupted, broken world. That's where evil comes from. That's what Gnostics said. John, on the other side, said, no, not so much. Because what that means is that there's really nothing, you know, good or bad about you. Everything is just kind of corrupted. It just is what it is. So there's a long way of saying it, but basically it de-emphasized the difference between good and bad, you know, evil and righteousness. It kind of made it all the same. We'll talk about that in just a second. But what, what John basically said is this, says, no, you know what? First and foremost, when you go back to the beginning, you were created in the image of God. So your dreams and your aspirations, your hopes and your desires, those altruistic things that you have about you when, when you're your best self, you know, those are things of God's image in you. You know, and you see human beings, you know, sometimes we can be totally awesome, can't we? You know, I mean, we could be totally awesome. You look at tragedies out there, and man, Americans, we respond because we, we go out there, we're helping people because we're, we're awesome, you know? We go, we work really, really hard with our money, and you know what we do with our money? We give it to causes that make a difference. Why? Because we're awesome. We find somebody, and we fall in love with them, and we say, I'm going to be committed to you, and I'm going to stay committed to you because when we have children, I'm going to create an environment where our kids are emotionally and psychologically healthy. And we're going to give them the best opportunity possible. Why? Because you're awesome. Where does all this awesomeness come from? Well, the Bible teaches it comes from being created in the image of God. And so therefore you have a soul. And so you, your soul longs for things. It's thirsty for things, right? Love and, and uh, value, affirmation, but also meaning and purpose. So what went wrong? Well, we invited evil into the world. We human beings created it by inviting it in. God didn't create it. We did. And so now we have this issue. It's called the cancer of the soul. And the general term for it is sin, right? And you heard him talk about it. Sin, sin, sin. The Bible says that word a lot, you know. 
And so over on this side, he says, look, so the reason why Jesus came was uh, basically to free you from the cancer of sin. He wants to heal you by paying a price you can't pay, right? It's a moral quandary by coming, emptying himself, taking the form of Jesus, dying on a cross. That's why he rose from the dead. So people hear that and they go, wow, that's pretty wild and crazy. But this is what John is saying, that this truth right here is what allows us to make sense out of life, understand our soul. And this has been the defense defining ideology of all Western civilization for over 2,000 years. And it's at the point now where 3 billion people on the planet believe it. And right now, you see the places where it is most oppressed, it is most stamped out, where it grows the strongest. It doesn't grow through power, intimidation, military action. And so how do you explain that? Because something's going on, and G, uh, John says, because this is the reality in which we live. We live in a reality, and you have to think it and see it and realize this is what human beings are. The reason why so many people follow Christ is because the Bible is the best way to describe our human condition. Nobody, nothing even comes close, 100%. Today, you hear about so many options like the Gnostics back then believed, and it comes out in today's world in this. It comes out by people who are saying, you know what, um, I, I want to be a really tolerant person. I want to be a person that loves people and is compassionate and is committed to peace. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to say I'm spiritual, right? But I'm really skeptical of any truth claim or any religion that says they know truth from falsehood. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hedge my bets, and I'm going to say, you know what? There's many ways to get to God. Because you know what that does? It allows me to be a spiritual person, right? But at the same time, I come across as extremely non-judgmental and very tolerant and very loving. Or so you think. In reality, when you say there are many ways to get to God, what you're really saying is that there are no truth or false. When there's no one way, all ways are equally legitimate. And when you say any and all ways are equally legitimate, then what you imply is that any moral choice that you make that fulfills whatever your self-described fulfillment of humanity is, is valid. So you may be going to heaven because you're a really great person. You know, you love your wife, you love your kids, you're involved in your community, you built a great business and you give to charity, but you're going to be sitting right next to Hitler because Hitler, guess what he did? He found his way to heaven too because he fulfilled his humanity in the way he felt it should be fulfilled. You see, what that does is that basically says in the end, there is no right or wrong there is no evil, there is no righteousness, because any choice becomes valid. That means all choices are valid. And John says in his book about Gnosticism, which taught the same thing, not so much. Because when nothing is right and nothing is wrong, you never discover who you really are, and you begin with a false reality, and that results in a senseless life. Now, the second thing he says in verses 4 through 14, I don't want to dig into it too much, but I just want you to notice that he says this a lot. He says, this is how we know him. This is how we know. 
is if we obey and follow. And then he says, children, you know. Fathers, you know. Young men, you know. Well, what is he talking about? What he's trying to say is that it's not what you know, it's who you know. Now, one of the biggest problems throughout all history is this, is it's the problem of religion, which is a legitimate problem. And that is, is that religion is all about what you know. Gnostics were all about the secret knowledge, what you know. And the difficulty is, is that when you focus only on what you know, then who you know is irrelevant. And what John says is that, look, religion is a problem. The Gnostics are creating a religion. Following Jesus is about a relationship with the living God. Now, the difficulty is, is that when you look at all history, human beings have a real penchant for taking something real, you know, with God, and then we turn it into what? A whole bunch of rules and regulations, right? You know, and then suddenly you feel like you're in the South, right? <laughs> well, you better get your hair cut, young man, because the devil is at your door. What kind of Sam Hill music you listening to over there? What you been drinking? You get that shine in you over there? Let's not talk about lust. <laughs> How do you turn a monosyllabical word like lust into two syllables? <laughs> that takes talent. So what happens is we just don't, we struggle with this. And the Gnostics did the exact same thing, you see. Today, it comes out in this, is that if we're skeptical of any and all truth claims, all truth is now relative. But what no one ever realizes is that when truth becomes relative, guess what else becomes relative? Reality. And that's what Justice Kennedy meant. You have the right to just make up your own existence and whatever you want. Is that any way to have any, as uh, Locke said, any kind of social contract or agreement? How do, you, how do we actually build a society around people who make up their own existence? How do you do that? You can't, because it, it just becomes senseless. We live senseless lives. The last thing he says here is really interesting in verses 15 through 17, where he basically says, don't love the world. So it all comes down to this, who or what you love makes all the difference. And that, it all comes down to this, and that is, is that if I love the world because I don't believe there's anything else beyond, then the difficulty is, is that I love something that passes away. And that's where meaning gets lost, because your soul longs for something eternal. When you have something that you live for that's eternal, and you know what that does? That says your life has value. The choices you make make a difference. The way you do things, that makes a difference. I want things that I do to make a difference because that makes my life have value. And that's the reality that you live in when there is Jesus. It's, it's so fascinating because the Gnostics basically said, enjoy the mess. It's corrupted. You're corrupted. Don't try. What you do is irrelevant. It doesn't really make a difference. But John says, when you love the world, guess what? You're not actually loving yourself. You're not respecting yourself. Because in the end, what you're saying is that your life has no value. Now, when it, this all comes down, this whole thing is that if you really want to understand Gnosticism, uh, first of all, shameless plug, you can listen to the Salty Pastor. 
drops every Tuesday and Thursday at 4. But the other thing that's really interesting about it, I thought I'd slide that in there. But the other thing that's really, really interesting about it is this, and that is, is that it all comes down to this concept of the cancer of the soul and where it comes from. It all comes down to this concept of what is commonly known as sin. Now, I get this because uh, there's been a lot of religion running around for so long, is that whenever you hear the word sin, if you're, if you're brand new, you're visiting with us, or you're watching online right now, you're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, here comes the sin. And yeah, here's the sin train. But the problem is, is that, I don't know why, but for me, it's always some guy in a white suit with a giant pinky ring in a southern accent, and he has his hair greased back, and he's talking about sin, the sin in you. And when that happens, what, what, what happens is you just have like, wow, that just seems to be so wrong. And guess what? You'd be right. You see, what you don't, may not realize is that sin in the first culture was actually an optic term that people in the military used. And you know what they always talked about is it, it, had, it was an optical term that talked about the notion of a bullseye, like you know, uh, so when these guys would go out and they go training, what they would do is they would use a weapon and they would say, okay, let's see what kind of a sinner you are today, you know. And so what they would do is they would go out and they would uh, have target practice, okay? Now, if you're wondering, because you're new to our church, this is going to happen. <laughs> Just saying. Now, they said, let's block off a couple of rows over there. And I said, there's no need. We're people of faith. Have faith in me. So, yeah, don't choke. <laughs> no choking. So, let's see. I don't know. If my, I, I was going to use some tracers here see how they do, see you can follow it. But basically what they would do when you talk about sin, I, I just do it this way because I want it to stick in your mind, is that I want you to know how significant it is, is they would go out and they would do target practice. And what they would do is, you'll notice that I didn't quite hit the bullseye. And they'd go, man, you sinned. You sinned. Now, to me, that puts a real different flavor to it. Because what it is is that there's something about who we are as human beings, something about how we're designed, how we're meant to be, how we are to fulfill our meaning and purpose. And when we live for that, right, no matter how hard we try because we're not perfect, what are we going to do? We're always going to miss the bullseye. And that's called what? Sin. And so you get this kind of flavor of what it really is. Hey, the tracer worked on that one. Ah, still off. A little better. If you look really close, first service, I almost hit the bullseye. I was nervous about that. I'm like, if I hit the bullseye, I'm going to ruin my entire illustration. <laughs> People are going to think I'm better than I am. But you see, what, what, what I want you to understand is that sin is not a judgment on you. It's not a way to say we're in and you're out. What it is, is it's a diagnostic tool. If you woke up one day 
and you pulled uh, the milk out of the fridge and an orange rolls out and hits you on the foot and your foot bruises up really bad like never before. Oh, that's odd. You're, you're losing weight and you go, that's strange because I haven't changed my diet. I mean, I've wanted to lose weight my whole life. Now I'm losing. What, what's up with that? You're not sleeping well and then you're taking a shower and some of your hair comes out. So you go to the doctor and the doctor says, hmm, that doesn't sound right. And so we're going to take some blood tests. They take some blood tests, right? And then he calls you a week later on the phone and you go, Doc, I'm kind of nervous. What's going on? And he says, well, there are some treatment options that you might like to consider. Um, I suggest you get on the internet and you Google your symptoms and then you listen to all the advice out there. And you're like, uh, okay, what's wrong with me? Well, we don't like to judge because that's mean. And we certainly don't want to tweet mean things. So we don't want to do that. You're thinking to yourself, what kind of Samuel doctor are you? Because when you call that doctor and he gets on the phone, he goes, here's what's going on. You got stage one leukemia. We caught it early. We have treatment plans for you. There's a little, little bit of chemo that you're going to go through, and we're going to change your diet. And we're going to do this. There's a 97% chance that you're going to be in remission within three years. What do you do? You say, sign me up. People go through the treatment, they go into remission. And then for the next 30 years of their life, they get to play a, a million rounds of really bad golf. They get to eat a bunch of really over-sugared, frosted cakes with too many candles on it. They get to hang out with people they love. They get to make a difference in the world. And they look back and they say, I am so thankful for that doctor. So my question for you today is, what if you have a soul? What if you really do? And your soul is thirsty for something. The Bible says that no matter how hard you lived life, no matter how achievement or how, how successful, how much you have it together, and some of you do, you're awesome, incredible people. The thing is, is that no matter how hard we try, we'll never hit the bullseye perfectly. We just won't. And that means that there's something wrong with our soul. What's wrong with our soul is our souls, John says, is it needs to be cured. Gnostics say this. Your modern-day culture says this. The media says this. Uh, university says this. They all look at you and they say, you know why you're not happy? You know why things aren't going well for you? You know why you're not living up to your potential? It's everybody else's fault. Your society is not communist enough or socialist enough. Your society and your university doesn't do this enough for you. There's these secret groups of people out there, all of these uh, Illuminatis that are holding you back. You'll never see them. They're nameless, faceless. But guess what? They're holding you back because the reason why you're not happy is it's everybody else's fault. The world in which you live is the world that has it, promises you everything. And if you're not happy and you're not fulfilled and you don't feel who you are, guess what? It's someone else's fault. John says, no, not so much. 
if you want to be free, if you want to be whole, if you want to know who you really are, if you want to walk in a meaningful and valuable and purposeful life, you have to begin with a place where no one else wants to begin. And that is you have to begin with yourself. And you just have to say, look, I'm happy with so many things I've done, so many things I've accomplished, but there's something still missing. There's a piece that's not there. And that's the thirst of your soul. It will not be satisfied with the world because the world and its lesser passing away. The only thing that can satisfy the thirst of the soul is Jesus. And that's why he looked at the woman at the well and said, when you drink of the water, I give you your soul will never thirst again. If you want to find meaning in life, if you want to live a nonsensical, senseless, whatever life, it can only be lived when you meet Jesus. You won't find it in religion. You're not going to find it in books. You're not going to find it in self-improvement. It only comes from one thing, and that is when Jesus heals you. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.